0: Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, slept with his fathers after reigning in Jerusalem for 40 years. Born to David by Bathsheba, Solomon ascended to the throne according to the promise of his father. Solomon ruled over the people with wisdom, built the temple of the Lord, and brought unprecedented wealth to his country. He also built high places for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. He is survived by his son, Rehoboam, 700 wives, and 300 beloved concubines, all of whom we will now list in alphabetical order as is appropriate for such an obituary. We come to 1 Kings chapter 11 and the end of it, verses 41 through 43, where we are given a brief obituary for Solomon, with whom we have become very familiar over the past few weeks. And we are left at his graveside wondering, Should we hold Solomon up as a paragon of virtue, a man who loved the Lord, who we should aim to imitate, or should we expose all of his failures and flaws, hold his life up as a warning for all who would hope to follow the Lord faithfully? As we come to his funeral service this morning, my aim is to do a little bit of both to hold him up as both example and as warning. And eventually to provide, well, at least two possible answers to that question Was Solomon saved? Was Solomon right with God? There is no 100% biblically factual, straightforward answer to that question, which is why it is one that is often raised. And it brings us to our main idea this morning, what I want to impress upon you at the end of the day, that application that I want you to put in your pocket and take with you and then pull out again and look at throughout the week. It's this, leave no doubt about your salvation. Leave no doubt about the one whom your soul has clung to. Walk in the newness of life, your whole life. Let's pray and we'll begin our time together this morning. Father, we ask you that you would use this time to speak to us through your word. Pray that as we look over Solomon's life, that you would use it to help us live our lives more faithfully. We pray that during this time you would snatch us out of our self-centeredness and drop us into the life of Christ. Recognize that you are present with us always. And in a very special and unique way in this time when we gather together to give you praise and honor and worship and obedience to your word. And so we ask that we would sense your real presence with us now. You would draw us close to yourself. You would bind up the wounds of the broken hearted that you would strengthen us to walk faithfully with you through this day and this week and this life. For you are God, and you are worthy of glory and honor and praise. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's begin by quickly considering the brief obituary provided To us by the author of Kings, verse 41 Now, the rest of the acts of Solomon and all that he did and his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the acts of Solomon? And the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David his father, and Rehoboam his son reigned in his place. It's sort of an anticlimactic end for Solomon. Last we saw him, he had turned his heart away from the Lord and was playing the part of Saul trying to kill the one who was to become the king of Israel. That's verse 40. And then verse 41, this obituary. So what are we to think of Solomon? Well, let's begin by surveying the good of his life, the good of his life. And I think we are introduced to Solomon all the way back at the beginning of the book. Remember, his kingdom is in question. We find David at the open of the book, and it's sort of (laughs) like the whole book in germ form. David, who was the mighty king of Israel, is weak and dying and laying in bed. He can't even keep himself warm, and so they go and look for a human water bottle uh, to keep him warm, to, to stir up his blood. not even Abishag can get him warm. He is fading. And indeed, the whole book of Kings is about the fading of the kingdom, about the kingdom's decline. A coup is then thought up, but that's overcome through the political calculations of Bathsheba and Nathan. And eventually Solomon finds his way to the throne, and he establishes his kingdom firmly by sending out Benaiah. Remember, we called him the punisher, Uh, to eliminate all of his potential enemies. And then in chapter 3, we are given our first real look inside of Solomon, the person. Look with me at verse 3 of chapter 3. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David, his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there. For that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and an uprightness of heart towards you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love, and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father. Although I am but a little child, do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore an understanding mind, remember that's literally a listening heart, to govern your people, so that, here's the purpose, I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this, your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And so we we get a look at Solomon, and what are we told about him? And it's only true of him in the Old Testament. It's said of nobody else but Solomon. We're told that Solomon loved the Lord. That is a great note to have about your life. Solomon loves the Lord his God, the father of David, and this love for the Lord leads him to please the Lord with his requests. God shows up and he says, Solomon, what should I give to you? You can have anything you want, not three wishes, one wish. You can't wish for more wishes. Those are the rules. And Solomon asks, for a listening heart, an understanding mind, not so that he might serve himself or raise himself up to prominence, but so that he might serve the people, so that he might rule over them justly. Remember David at the end of his life, at the end of 2 Samuel, says that one who rules over the people in the righteousness of God, who rules justly, it's like sunshine on them like water on grass. Authority used for the blessing of others is very, very good. That's how God designed it. And this is what Solomon asks. He says, God, you have put me in a position of authority and I am praying for the necessary equipment and gifts so that I might use that authority well to bless your people. God is pleased with this. And he grants Solomon's request and so much more. We see that Solomon has an understanding mind as illustrated by that famous story of the two prostitutes who are both pregnant at the same time. They give birth on the same night. One of the women rolls over and smothers her child to death. And in the midst of her grief, she hatches a plan. The woman across the room has a baby too. And so she, she creeps on over and she takes the live baby to herself and her own breast and lies the dead child at the breast of the other woman. Obviously, there's a great kerfuffle when the morning comes, and eventually the case comes before King Solomon. How is he to decide? It's a she said, she said. There are not witnesses. And so Solomon, uh, being the good king that he is, he says, let's go halvesies on this. Uh, Get me a sword. I'll cut the kid in half, and each of you can have a half, right? It's really smart. And what happens? Well, the the real mother goes, I would rather the child live with this other woman than the child die. And the consequence of that is everyone stands amazed at the wisdom of the king, at his ability to judge rightly. And Solomon's wisdom, his justice with which he rules, extends beyond the courtroom. It extends out into all of Israel. Look at how the people flourish under his reign. I'm going to read to you a compilation of verses from chapter 4 of 1 Kings here, verses 20, 25, and 34. Uh, Don't try to keep up. You just listen. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. And Judah and Israel lived in safety, from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, all the days of Solomon. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Things are going really, really well under the reign of Solomon. If you look back to those promises to the patriarchs, they are promised land, seed, blessing. Solomon has the people in the promised land. The seed of Abraham has grown and multiplied. The people are as the sand by the sea. Everyone is eating and drinking and is happy. They're sitting underneath their own vines. Indeed, They are blessing the nations as the nations come to hear God's word spoken to them by God's king. If we didn't know better, and the original audience didn't know better, they knew better too, right? They were on the other side of the exile. We would think that Solomon was this Messiah who was promised long ago. The one who would snuff out evil and lead God's people back into God's presence and back into Eden. His life is a good life. I mean, he even builds a miniature Eden in the temple where God puts his very name and presence. Building the temple is a big deal. It's a fulfillment of God's promise. It takes up a tremendous amount of space here in 1 Kings. And one of the things that just jumps out from it is that the whole chapter after they've they've built it, we're told about how glorious the temple is, when it is being dedicated, Solomon prays this wonderful prayer and listen to what he asks for. Verse 30 of chapter 8. Listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. And listen in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. It's a beautiful refrain throughout the chapter. For all these various situations, he even anticipates the exile. He says, they're going to turn their hearts against you, but when they turn back and they pray in your name, when they call on your name, hear and act on their behalf. Forgive them. In fact, there are going to be people from other nations who will hear of your great name, that's verse 42, chapter 8, of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. But When they come, when they pray towards your name, when they call on your name here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you. Solomon is, is praying that God in his kindness would forgive all who call upon his name. That God would forgive the sins of his people. You know, if you're like me, When you read through that sort of a request, you go, why? (laughs) Like, on what grounds, Solomon, would you ask for God to forgive not only your sins, but the sins of the people and the sins of those who do not yet know God, but you're assuming will come to know him? On what basis do you ask God for future grace, for the forgiveness of sins that haven't even been committed yet? And look how he grounds his prayer. He grounds it here in verse 53. For you, or because you, separated them, that's the Israelites, that's his people, from among all the peoples of the earth to be your heritage, your inheritance, as you declared through Moses your servant when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. I love this. So why, why should you forgive our sins in the future, God? Because you chose to save us out of slavery in Egypt and to adopt us to yourself. You have decided to call your people your son and to set your love on us. And therefore, your reputation, because you decided it would be, is now knit together with us. And so, in order to display your justice and your mercy and your glory to the world, continue to forgive us and pour out blessing on us, even though we don't deserve it. Why? Because you are good, not because we have earned it. it really is a wonderful thing, you see, the gospel in the Exodus. God takes the people out of Egypt, and then he gives them the Ten Commandments. I mean, that's Christianity. We, we don't obey in order to get God to approve of us. No, no, we obey God because he's adopted us into his family in Christ. And we go, how do we love you back? How do we honor you as king and as Lord? The answer is we obey. Not to earn God's blessing, but because we've been given relationship with God. It's incredible, forgive us because you have chosen to put your love on us and you have saved us. I love uh, verse four of Exodus 19. God says, I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Just love that picture. And it's one that suits us on this side of the cross also. We, all of us, apart from Christ, are enslaved to sin. Chained by our passions and our self-rule. We're going to do things our way. We live life in a dungeon inside of a cell. And we like it there. And then God, because of the great love with which he loves us, sends his spirit to us. Opens our eyes so we can see just how horrible our situation is. And as our eyes are opened, our hearts begin to beat for God rather than our own glory. And we see the Lord Jesus Christ standing there. And he says, I'll take those chains from around your wrists and your ankles. And he breaks them. He says, I will lead you out of this dragon's dungeon. You need only follow me. And he takes us to his father's house. Friends, everyone who turns from their sin and trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ is born up on eagle's wings and brought into right relationship with God the Father. That's really good news. How is it that Jesus can save us from the dungeon and from death and eventually from the right wrath of God? Well, He dies. He dies for our sins on the cross. He takes the wrath that we deserve so that when we put our faith in him, we can enjoy the blessing that only he deserves. This is really good news. Non-Christian, you can have right relationship with God. In fact, it's what you were made for. Maybe you've gone your whole life and you have followed your feelings and you've looked for satisfaction here and there. And I get that. I've lived that. What you were made for is the worship of God. What you are looking for is a relationship with God. There's only one way that it can be had. You have to die to yourself and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you would do that even this day and join the rest of us in singing Wesley's wonderful hymn, that hook, my chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose went forth and followed thee. Remember, the reason God calls his people out of slavery in Egypt, the reason he has called you and I out of death and into life, so that we could love him, glorify him, and enjoy him forever. In a word, worship him. Been freed to worship him. And that's precisely what Solomon does at the temple dedication through prayer and instruction and offering. You, you see the end of his, his prayer, it's almost, it reads sort of like a benediction, verse 61. He gives the people this instruction. Let your heart, therefore, be wholly true to the Lord our God, walking in his statutes and keeping his commandments as at this day. Don't give your heart to another. Worship God all your days as we worship Him together this day, Solomon says. And then he starts just the greatest party in the Old Testament. I mean, this, the end of chapter 8, is the high point in the Old Covenant. It is the high point of the United Monarchy, and I would argue the high point of Solomon's life as all of the people begin making sacrifices to the Lord in worship. They are offering to him fellowship offerings, which would have brought to mind as the blood was spilled, that our sin, the forgiveness of it, requires the spilling of blood. It's a serious thing. But What's unique about the fellowship offering is that it's the only offering that the worshipers themselves are able to eat. And so after that blood is spilled, that meat is thrown on the barbie, as they say, grilled up and a portion is given to the Lord and then the people eat a portion and you can see the symbolism they've been made right with God they're now free those who are enemies are now free to be seated at his table and eating and drinking together with him there's an incredible scene here it anticipates the Lord's supper right wherein we come into God's presence and we eat together around his table because of the work of the Lord Jesus because he made a sacrifice that paid for our sins and rose from the dead to free us from death, to vindicate himself and his people. They sit around eating with God, and it's just so good. There's not enough space on the altar in these designated areas where they're to make sacrifices, and so Solomon consecrates the whole temple complex. and He says, all of this now, the whole thing is a barbecue, you know, sacrifice where you are. The, the whole place would have been filled with blood and the howling of animals as they were butchered and the joyous sound of the people rejoicing and eating and singing and dancing. It really is marvelous. All of this takes place at the beginning of the Feast of Booths or of Tabernacles called Succoth, which actually starts, I think, today, yesterday, maybe, today, tomorrow. It's a Jewish feast. And in it, they celebrate their coming out, of ex, out in the Exodus, being brought through the wilderness and being brought to the land. And they put for themselves up booths or tents, and they camp out around Jerusalem. And it is a festival. The Lord says, You shall keep this festival seven days rejoicing before the Lord. Right? And this is what's happening here. They're keeping this festival. And the text is weird in verse 66. It says seven days and seven days which I actually I think most other translations bring across 14 days. It was either a week or two weeks, but the point is they are celebrating the Lord their God and their reconciliation to him. It is an incredible party that is filled with serious joy. They recognize the cost of their sins. They receive the forgiveness and grace of God and they delight in the fellowship they have together with him. We read in verse 66 on the eighth day he sent the people away and they blessed the king and went to their homes joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness that the Lord had shown to David his servant and to Israel his people. Solomon's life had a lot of good in it. What are we to do? What are we to learn from this portion of his life. Solomon paragon of virtue. What are some of those virtues that we could, could follow? I think first and foremost, and this is an easy one, I would love for it to be said of you and me and of RVBC that we loved the Lord. Now, if there's something that you should want written on your tombstone, is that this person, I, that he, she loved the Lord that we all would want that to be said of us, but can it be honestly said of you? What does your life tell you? Much of your time is spent thinking of Jesus, speaking to Jesus in prayer, listening to Jesus as you read his word, worshiping Jesus as you gather together with his people regularly. If somebody you know, an objective third party, uh, or to be asked, you know, what what does Bob love most? What does Susie love most? Would someone's first response be Jesus? Is Jesus about you? Or might they say football, you know, lawn? would it be? Friends, I pray that we would love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that we would be those who are identified by our love for the Lord our God. I think also from Solomon, we see that he leverages his gifts for the good of others. He shapes his actions by the word of God. This is a good model to follow that we would shape our lives by the word of God and then love others in our communities, in our church, in our families, in such a way. This brings glory to God and justice to the world when we love the world like God tells us to. Not how we tell ourselves to or what we might think, but according to his word. It is interesting how shaped by God's word Solomon is. If you look at that, that prayer in uh, chapter 8, he, he is consistently speaking about God's character, you know, his, his mercy, his love, his severity, his omnipresence, his omnipotence. Solomon is bringing up all of these attributes of God, all of these, these things about God, because he knows who God is. He's been shaped by his word. What a great example for us especially if you are the type that has trouble praying. there' a really good pattern for you to, to, to flip to 1 Kings 8 and begin to pray. Follow Solomon's example. Be shaped by God's word. Use it as, as a spark to get that fire going. Kindling for yourself. You know, Turn to the Psalms. Turn to Paul's prayers in the New Testament and and pray God's word back to him. That's the best way to pray. also see that last note that Solomon worships the Lord with joy and seriousness. that should be our goal, not to make light of who God is or to come into his presence casually, but to recognize his might and his glory rightly and also to come to him as our heavenly father loves us. There is much good in Solomon's life. Yeah, there's also bad. Um, it's a little bit like Two-Face and Batman. The old line you, you either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. And indeed, Solomon does a heel turn when his heart is turned away From the Lord. But this did not come to us in a way that was surprising. We look back in chapter 3, even when we're told of his love for the Lord, and we recognize that there are some seeds of idolatry even from the beginning. You see that in verse 1 of chapter 3. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David. It is interesting, we read all of these chapters against the backdrop of Deuteronomy chapter 17 where God tells his people, when you get a king, there are some things that he needs to do and some things he needs to not do. What he definitely needs to do is take a copy of my word, he needs to copy it down himself and then carry it with him and read from it all the days of his life. And there are some things that he absolutely cannot do. He cannot take to himself foreign wives or many wives, he cannot add to himself excessive gold or silver, and he shouldn't cause the people to return to Egypt. He shouldn't gather to himself, uh, it's weapons here, but horses and chariots. And what we found throughout our walk through 1 uh, Kings is that Solomon has, has done all of these. We've summarized it by saying Solomon has gone after gold, guns, and girls. And it really is excessive. We see that he has a port at the Red Sea where people go into Egypt to acquire horses for him. We've seen him gather many wives, which we'll come back to. And we've also seen him gain to himself excessive silver and gold. And it's always sort of that question, like the Lord has said he's going to bless him with great wealth. And the question is, at what point does his wealth become excessive? And I think we have an answer here in verse 21, though I do think it's mostly about his heart and less about how much, how much gold he has. Chapter 10, verse 21 all King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold. And all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. None were of silver. I love this line here. Silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. I don't know, it seems a little excessive. He's gathered to himself vast amounts of wealth and weapons, and, and yes, women, women. And that's finally revealed to us. It's as if the author holds a lot of this information back until chapter 11, where we read, starting with verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations, concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, Neither shall they with you, because they will surely turn away your heart after their gods. These Solomon clung to in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives, just like God said, turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. Really ironic in light of verse 61 of chapter eight, where he says, let your heart be wholly true to the Lord your God. It's Not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully, wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives, who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. In his old age, Solomon turns his heart away from the Lord, pursues idolatry, builds shrines to false gods rather than the one true God who had appeared to him twice, once giving him wisdom, a listening heart, and a second time to warn him after the dedication of the uh, temple. You can see it there at the beginning of chapter nine where God says, don't go after idols. And still Solomon's heart turns away. Be warned. You might think that you are safe from sin, but it might just find a way into your house in the places that you are not looking. That's why we have recently have said when it comes to sin, we need to be a people who are constantly taking our hearts out of our chests and looking in the corners to make sure there's not sin there handing our hearts to our brothers and sisters in Christ and saying, do you see any monsters under my bed? Is there sin that I am not seeing that's hidden from me? Are there ants, you know, just coming into the kitchen after the honeypot that I haven't noticed? Be warned, sin never sleeps. And it can turn even the hearts of kings. It really is. Horrific what happens here. He he builds shrines to these false gods. A sin that starts in Solomon spreads. Spreads across space and time. As the people throughout Israel worship false gods in Solomon's day and in the day of his children's children and his children's children's children. Over and over again, throughout the rest of Kings, we will read of the people going and worshiping false gods at the high places. Solomon helped facilitate that sin. My stepfather-in-law has a pond at his house. It's not huge, but it's not little either. There are like fish in there. It's it's just big enough to have a dock off the end, a couple fishing boats, get a little paddle boat going. The you know, boys will get in the paddle boat every now and then and go out in there and then come back in. They have a little clubhouse set up on the shore. It's, it's good times, or at least it used to be. See, a few years ago now, uh, my father-in-law, along with some of his other neighbors, got cattle. You know, he himself got it. it's like 20 or 30 head of cattle. And one of the unexpected consequences of getting these cows was that the nitrate from their waste ran off into the tributaries that flow into the pond. And he's at the end of the line where there's sort of a dam built up there. But do you know what happens if you get all this nitrate in the water? Well, it facilitates the growth of something called duckweed. I don't know if you've ever heard of duckweed. I had not. But duckweed sort of floats on the top of the water, almost like a lily pad, except it's more ugly and gross. And... It just sits there and fills up. It doubles at a rate of, I'm sorry, it doubles itself every 16 to 48 hours. We're talking explosive growth. So initially you just see like one little patch, you're like, no big deal, it's fine. But almost overnight, I mean, it covers that whole pond. Looks a little bit more like a giant putting green than it does a pond these days, unless the wind is able to sweep it all to one end. Friends, sin is like social duckweed. It grows in you, it multiplies very, very quickly, even though you don't think it's that big of a deal, and it impacts others in ways that you did not foresee. Solomon was a great king, and he committed great sin. Sin significant enough to dramatically impact all of his kingdom sin that helped to facilitate the exile. Friends, beware of sin. Be warned. Another thing we can learn from the bad parts of Solomon's life is to be warned that your effectiveness doesn't justify your sinfulness. I mean, one of the most effective ways, I imagine, from a worldly perspective, uh, to secure peace for your nation is to forge alliances with your neighbors through marriage. So you can see Solomon sort of calculating, right? I like women. I should, you know what? I like her. She's the daughter of so and so. This will help bring peace between our country and their country. I should marry her. And then tomorrow I'm gonna marry this one. And really, it, it's, it's about national security here, okay? So national security matter I need to gather many wives to myself. It doesn't matter what God's word says. I can reject that because this is more effective. It's more immediately practical. It makes sense to me. How often have we justified our disobedience to God's word because we couldn't see how obedience to his word would bring about the outcome we desired? How often... Do we sacrifice obedience on the altar of efficiency according to our own wisdom? All brothers and sisters, be warned about this lie. Effectiveness does not justify sinfulness. Be warned. Last point from Solomon's life. Be warned that great gifts do not excuse great sin. You might be the most gifted individual the world has ever seen. But that will not excuse your sin. God's judgment comes. He judges all evil. And he disciplines his children. He's a loving father. And so when we stamp our feet and yell at him, has us put our hands on the wall, gives us a spanking. He disciplines us, corrects us so that we might be conformed more and more to the image of Christ. Be warned, your giftedness will not excuse your sinfulness. There is good and bad in Solomon's life, and together it sort of gives us a gray picture that's why we've said from the start, that first time Solomon showed up, that we don't want to call him Solomon the wise, but Solomon the gray. Because of his gray life. So how should we evaluate the fruit of Solomon's life? Was he someone who was made right with God? Who was saved? At whose funeral we could stand and say with 100% Solomon walked with the Lord and knew him. I don't think so. There are two positions on Solomon's standing with God, and I'm going to outline those both for you in a second and tell you which way I lean. But I I do need to make this point on the front end. The author of Kings wants us to look at the end of Solomon's life and be horrified. He wants to put us on notice that if this could happen to Solomon, it could happen to us. And he wants us to go, we should walk with God faithfully our whole lives, especially in old age. You see when Solomon, when this happens to Solomon, when Solomon was old, verse four, chapter 11, he's saying, "Keep obeying the Lord." All right, so was Solomon saved? Position one, Position one says, "No, he was not saved. He was apostate. Apostate means, uh, basically that you appeared. To be following the Lord, the side of the cross, we would say you appear to be a Christian, but then over time you proved not to be by walking away from the Lord. To be a apostate is to turn away from the faith by words, actions, or perhaps both so that it is an outright denial of the faith. This counterfeit faith. And indeed, we read in chapter 11, Quite a few times, he turned his heart away. He turned his heart away. The Lord turned, I'm sorry, his wives turned his heart after other gods. Under this uh, position, Solomon would sort of fit into the footsteps of Judas. Right? Judas, who was around Jesus, heard every word of every sermon that Jesus ever preached, and yet harbored in his chest a double heart. Sounds a lot like Solomon, right? Judas loved Jesus, but he also loved money and he helped himself to what was in the money bag as the treasurer. And he betrayed Jesus for some silver. If this is true of Solomon, the words of the apostle John would be fitting. In verse 19, 1 John chapter 2. John's speaking of church members who have left and departed from the faith. He says this, they went out from us because they were not of us. Because if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out so that it might become plain that they are not of us. You see what John says there. He says, those who are truly united to the Lord Jesus by faith don't get ununited from him. Those who get adopted into the family of God are not then put out of the family. And the way you know that they're in the family of God, that they're united to Christ Jesus by faith alone, through the grace of God alone, is that their faith isn't alone. It's producing good fruit. They're living faithfully in obedience to his commandment. They're following Jesus. When sin is in their life, they're repenting of it. But, They follow Jesus for a while, leave the church, turn away from the faith. Well, then they find themselves like some of those plants in the parable of the soil, choked out by the cares and worries of the world. Shallow roots, quickly green and quickly gone. Seed that was sown along the path and then plucked up by the birds of the air. Indeed, they find themselves, or will find themselves, on the other end of Jesus' words in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Based on the evidence, we have to admit, this is a pretty strong position to, to argue that Solomon ultimately turned away from the Lord and didn't really know the Lord. He was always double-hearted. Not my position, though. Now, I lean to the, the second position, uh, which is more optimistic About Solomon's salvation. Let me lay out a few reasons why. First and foremost, I think this is the strongest piece of evidence, God promises that he will not take his love from Solomon. 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 12, God is speaking to David. This is the Davidic covenant, big important promise in the Bible. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Prophecy is always twofold. This is talking long-term about Jesus, short-term about Solomon, which will become clear here in verse 13. He, this is referring to Solomon, shall build a house for my name. Solomon did that. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me And so God by his grace and his mercy is telling David, I'm not going to leave your son Solomon. I'm not going to take my love from him. Additionally, we have good evidence that Solomon is the author of a book called Ecclesiastes. And he concludes that book with this. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 verse 13. The end of the matter after all has been heard, is this. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. It's my contention that because of God's promise and what I I think is probably Solomon's repentance before his death, that we ought to view Solomon as one who was indeed right with God. I don't think verse 3 chapter 3 was lying when it says Solomon loved the Lord. I believe like many of us sometimes our loves get disordered. We go after idols and begin living for sex, career, money, power, social acceptance. We have to come to the Lord again and ask for forgiveness and enjoy that fresh grace. God in his kindness answers that prayer of, of Solomon and of ours. When we sin and turn and pray and call out in your name, hear and forgive. If this position is true, Solomon is more like Peter, who for a season denied his Lord, but never stopped loving him, who was then restored into his favor. I love that threefold question from Jesus in John 21. Peter, do you love me more than thee? You know I do, Lord. Feed my sheep. I think, perhaps Solomon would, if this position is correct, fit better with our scripture reading from this morning, First John 1. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another one of my favorite verses there. If you know God, you'll have fellowship with other Christians. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Here's the part I wanted to get to. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God loves and saves sinners. I think that Solomon I'm optimistic about this, remember, is in the same category as Peter and as Saul, who we often use the other name for and call Paul, who said in 1 Timothy, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. God saves those who set themselves up against him as their enemies. Why? Because he chooses to, because he's that good, because he's that loving, because he's that gracious. It's who God is. I love how Romans says it. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't clean ourselves up And then he died for us. No, he died for us while we were yet sinners. Verse 9, Romans 5. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more? Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. It is my optimistic belief that just as Jesus saves sinners like you and me and Peter that he saved a sinner like Solomon. It is my hope. Still, we cannot be 100% sure both of those positions have merit. And that gets us to our main point, our main application here at the end. You're like, we've finally arrived after all of that. We stand at Solomon's graveside. And there is at least a little bit of doubt about how he is spending eternity. When we come to your graveside one day, Pray that you will live your life in such a way that there will be no doubt. Friends, leave no doubt about your love for the Lord Jesus. Walk in the newness of life your whole life. Leave no doubt about Jesus' love for you. Leave no doubt in the minds of your friends and your family and those who engage with you on a regular basis about who you are and whose you are. Leave a legacy that matters. Not money or prestige or a record of good deeds. Those are fine things. Leave a legacy of a Christian. A spiritual legacy so that long after you are dead, those who knew you will see the shadow of your life and be reminded of your witness and your worship of the crucified and risen King, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, leave no doubt. Let's pray. Father, we thank you We are made right with you, not because we are so good, but because you are so gracious. We deserve not to call you Father. If we were to get what we would deserve, it would be nothing but your judgment. Yet in your kindness and your mercy, you poured out the judgment reserved for us on your own eternal Son. So that you might credit us with his righteous life and righteousness. So that we might be made sons of God. Lord, we praise you for bearing us on eagles' wings and bringing us to yourself by the Spirit through Christ our Lord. In whose name we pray, amen.